Actually, I don't know anyone in the world who only does things that they enjoy. Even people who are really rich don't only do things that they enjoy because we all have to do things that at times do feel like work. Sometimes, as much as you enjoy it, writing a book or like going to the gym or even spending time with your family does feel like a bit of a chore, even if you enjoy it. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Ganador de la Carrera, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today, we are joined by one of my favorite YouTubers, very, very close friends, and all around very kind guy, Ali Abdal. He is the world's most followed productivity expert. His YouTube channel has 5 million subscribers, and he just dropped his brand new book, which I do recommend if you're interested in productivity and feeling good. It's called Feel Good Productivity. I bought it, I read it, I enjoyed it. Ali makes being extremely productive extremely fun. If you also want to know how to do more of what really matters in life and waste less time doing things that don't matter at all, you need to check it out. One of my favorite stories in the book was about LeBron James and how he's actually the slowest basketball player. Find out why in the book. As well, if you're interested in books in general, this is the last week to join my book team. We're launching the book at the end of January. If you're interested in it, email me book at okdork.com. That's book at okdork.com to join. In this conversation, you'll learn three gigantic things. Number one, how did Ali's upbringing and his parents influence his life? I was really surprised by this. Number two, what's been the major takeaway from teaching people about productivity and helping them through that? And number four, Ali's business journey. I was shocked at all the different businesses that he has done that's led him to end up producing this book. Again, the book is called Feel Good Productivity. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more from another best-selling author, check out one of our recent episodes with Hal Elrod. A lot of people sent me positive messages that they love this one. It is episode 330 in the feed. You can also find out more about Ali at aliabdal.com. That's A-L-I-A-B-D-A-A-L.com. Also, Ali Abdal on Twitter and Instagram. Quick sponsor plug, and I am so excited about the sponsor. And y'all know I have almost zero sponsors because most of the companies that sponsor suck, and I can't really endorse them fully. Today's company, I fully do. It is gusto.com. You can check them out at gusto.com slash Noah. Let them know you came from us. This is so cool that they were excited to get into your earlobes. Now, at AppSumo.com, we use, I think, Insperity or some other crappy thing. And I pray to all the Jesus, Jewish, Buddha, Muslim, all the gods that one day we can be on Gusto.com. You can use Gusto.com slash Noah. Now, for our smaller team, this is definitely something we're considering for the YouTube team. If you're a one-person or two-person team, if you have HR headaches or you haven't even thought about it, Gusto.com slash Noah is probably the thing to go do today. Get it over with. And then you can actually be like, holy shit, that was awesome because this is such a nightmare trying to get 1099. So if you have contractors, if you get a full-time employee, and good for you, by the way, grant your own company. I'm proud of you. You've been listening to the show and taking action, doing payroll. It's unbelievable how it's like, dude, how does this help me grow my business? I don't want to be dealing with this. I want to be helping customers and kicking ass and drinking lattes or, or orange mocha frappuccinos. So by getting all this stuff set up with gusto.com, you don't have to worry about any of that crap. It is such a headache. We literally at AppSumo have two full-time people because we're not using gusto.com. Why the hell are we not using this shit right away? I'm going to have to talk to the team. But if you're just getting started, you want to maybe do 401k, health insurance, a lot of other stuff. If you're hiring people internationally, it's a pain in the tuchus. Go use gusto.com slash Noah. Shout out to them for hooking us up. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Yamil Yamunya. That's a cool name. Great inspiration. Noah has been quite an inspiration on my entrepreneurial journey, and this podcast is no different. I'm very much looking forward to what I can learn in all future episodes. Damn, I love you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. Y'all know what to do. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. I check every single one of them. How does it feel on the, the other side, Ali? I much prefer being a podcast guest than making a YouTube video. It's like if someone asks me a question, I can respond and I'm like in flow, I'm in the zone, all that kind of fun stuff. 
But if I'm just talking directly to a camera and there's no one else in the room and there's no energy, then it feels a lot harder. So I'm kind of comparing this to what it's like filming my own YouTube video, and this is just way nicer. <laughs> and there's no response when you're filming your own YouTube. Yeah, video. exactly. It's just a freaking camera. I'm just like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you, is that how you feel? Yeah, all the time. What's the question you you wish people ask you? Then they're like, oh, you're like, oh, just give me that one question, dude. I can't wait. <laughs> Do you have a question I wish people ask me? I find it flattering that people would uh, want to ask me anything, anything at all. <laughs> I wish someone would ask me something like, "What's the last book you've read that had an impact on you?" or something like that. Because I, I always have a new book that I've read that had, that's had an impact on me. So I feel like that would be a, a good way of me to resurface the things that I've been thinking about myself. What's the last book you've read and that had an impact on you? The last book I read that's had an impact on me is a weird one. It's The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale. Have you heard of this guy? I've heard of it. He's old school, like radio stuff. He's like an old school 1950s US radio guy who was motivational self-help guru back in the day. He recorded this audio program in 1956 which is like the secret to success. And his like grandchildren turned it into a Kindle ebook, which I read recently. And it's really good. I mean, the first half of it is really good. But basically, this is the first book I've read that has fully sold me on the idea of setting goals. Basically, the first half of the book is, is just like, look, the secret to success in all areas of life is basically you got to know what you want. And if you just know what you want and like write it down somewhere and just have a destination in mind, then everything else will just work out. Everything else will take care of itself as long as you know what you want. And I'm like, huh, that's quite nice. And he's just basically saying that in a bunch of different ways. Just know what you want. And so I've been seeing this a lot, like when I help people with their YouTube channels or their businesses and stuff. The question I always find myself asking is, what's the goal? Like, what are we actually trying to do here? Because people will often come to me and I, I used to have this thing when I, when I would speak to my own coaches and my own mentors and I'd be like, oh, I'm struggling with this, this, this and I'm not sure whether to X or Y or Z. And they would say, okay, Let's zoom out a little. What's the goal? And I'd always be like stumped by that question because I'm like, I don't freaking know. Like make money, have fun, help people, all, all this kind of stuff. And I never really had clarity on what my goal was and like where I was actually trying to get to. But now that I'm kind of more in that coach position where I'm helping people out and mentoring them, and now that I've read this book, I'm like, oh, it's just so helpful when you know what someone's destination is because then you can help them figure out like all of the chess moves that would take to get there. But if someone doesn't know what they want, then it's like, you know, I was sp speaking to a friend, a mutual friend of ours earlier. And she was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to make videos about. I was like, okay, what's the goal? What are we trying to do here? And based on that, we can brainstorm some things to make videos about. But it's just, oh, it's so good. Figure out what the goal is and just write it down somewhere. It seems in life it's easier to get what you want, but figuring out what we want is harder. Yeah, it's so hard to figure out what you actually want. And there are so many people that I know, and I have this problem myself where it's like struggling to figure out what to do with my life. It's like a phrase that you know I, I often used to throw around. And I think taking the time to fig actually figure that out. It's not that hard to figure out because I, I, think, I think one of the problems is that people feel like once they have, quote, figured it out, then it's a fixed destination and they can't change. But actually, <laughs> the whole point of figuring it out is just like setting yourself a direction. Like the journey is what matters, but you can't have a journey without a destination in mind. That's not to say you're going to be fixated on that destination, but at least it tells you what direction to go in. There was a, a thing that one of my mentors in medical school said to me once ages ago. He asked me what specialty I wanted to specialize in. And I was like, I don't know. I'm only in my fourth year. I've got another three years to decide and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, sure, like you don't have to decide right now, but it's much easier to steer a moving ship than a stationary ship. And I was like, huh. So he was like, I'd recommend you just pick something and just go for it and then change course along the way. And I guarantee it's going to be a good method. And I was like, okay, cool. So I decided to go for plastic surgery, like reconstructive surgery. And then opportunities started coming my way. I started, well, I, st I started seeing like, oh, there's a conference there. There's this thing there. I can attend this thing there. I could design that website for that person there who I know is connected to this like plastic surgery organization. Started connecting with all these people. And I'm like, 
all of a sudden, the universe conspired to help me meet other people who are plastic surgeons for me to realize that, okay, I probably don't want this, but it's also really cool. But what I do want is this thing. And by virtue of just taking action and moving in that direction, something you talk about in Billion Dollar Weekend, good things just started to happen. Whereas when I was static and I was like, oh, I need to figure it out. It's like, sometimes figuring out where you want to go is a case just about just committing to the thing and not over fixating on like, oh, I really need to think so hard. It's about where do you feel you might like to go? Cool. Let's start going in that direction and we can always change course along the way. You got me remembering I did the best boyfriend ever strategy. I was dating women. This is two women I dated years ago, many years ago. I didn't know if it was a good relationship. I think all of us have done that. Like, I don't know if it's a good job. I don't know if it's a good thing. I was like, well, I'm just going to act like it's the best relationship I've ever been in. And I'm going to treat them the best they've ever had. And I said, I'm going to do it for three months. And this is for two different women. And both times after I was the best I've ever been, like, I can't, I'm like, this is the best you're going to get out of me. I was like, oh, it's not a good relationship for me. I broke up. But at least I committed to being the best in that relationship. And then it was able to make that decision. Yeah. Pretty helpful. That sounds very helpful. So you just said the book that impacted you the most, uh, Earl Nightingale, The Stranger's Secret. What do you want people telling someone else about feel-good productivity? What I would love people to tell other people about feel-good productivity is, man, this book really taught me that the secret to being productive is to find a way to feel good, is to find a way to enjoy what you're doing. And I think just that, like, that is the core message of the book. If you find a way to enjoy what you are doing, you will be more productive, you'll be more creative, you'll be less stressed, you'll have more energy to give to your work, but also to every other area of your life. You'll be able to sustain it for longer. Just find a way to enjoy what you're doing. That's not to say only do things that you enjoy. That's very different because the only people that only do things that they enjoy are, actually, I don't know anyone in the world who only does things that they enjoy. Even people who are really rich don't only do things that they enjoy because we all have to do things that at times do feel like work. Sometimes as much as you enjoy it, writing a book or like going to the gym or even spending time with your family does feel like a bit of a chore, even if you enjoy it. People who have kids say that sometimes it's not always enjoyable. So I'm not saying you have to always enjoy it and you can only do things that are fun. I'm saying there's always a way to take whatever you're doing and approach it in a way that makes it feel a little bit better. And if that's the one thing people take away from it, that will be, that'll be a win for me. So I read it and I recommend it. Oh, thanks. There's a lot in it. Yeah. And I love how you have, I think it's labs or experiments. Experiments, yeah. Experiments. And there's just like, there's a lot in there. What do you think is the one that you've noticed as people have been reading your book and passing the book around that people are like, this is the one I'm, I'm like, I'm going to think about this more. In the first chapter, the first chapter is play. And there's a really simple experiment that you can try there. And it's just like a simple question to ask yourself whenever you're doing something that feels like a bit of a grind, which is to ask yourself, what would this look like if it were fun? Like Tim Ferriss has, the, has a variant of this question, what would this look like if it were easy? But my version is, what would this look like if it were fun? If you're struggling with studying for that exam or writing that essay or making that presentation or starting that, like writing that landing page, whatever the thing might be, what would it look like if it were actually fun? And normally if you ask that question, people can always come up with five or 10 different ways that the thing that they're currently doing could be made a little bit more fun. Maybe it's background music. Maybe it's doing it with friends. Maybe it's like going down to the local coffee shop and having a coffee and doing it on your laptop from there rather than sitting in your office. Like there's so many different ways that we could potentially find of making things fun, but it's a question we don't often ask. And that simple question is a thing that seems to resonate with quite a lot of people. How did it feel to write the book? It felt enjoyable at times. It felt like a grind at times. It felt like a battle with imposter syndrome a lot of the time. It felt like... I'm doing this thing that feels scary because putting a book out into the world feels like a scary thing. That's going to open me to, you know, bad reviews and criticism and stuff. It feels scary. It felt scary because it's like, what if it doesn't sell as many copies as like, I don't know, I would like it to sell, even though I don't really know how many copies I'd like it to sell. But it also felt quite joyful at times along the way where it was like when I was researching something and things suddenly came together and I was like, oh, that's it. Like all this reading I've been doing, this is the one thing that is like ties it all together. 
So there were parts of it that were super fun, parts of it that were less fun. But now that I've done the process once, I'm excited to write future books because I know what I would do differently next time. <laughs> I'm one and done. I'm like, this is my best book. It's the only book, Million Dollar Weekend. Oh, interesting. I want to write a book every few years. Oh, wow. And then, so what did you say, what would you change or what did you regret in this process? The way I want to approach future books is I want to have the title sorted. I want to have the sort of one paragraph sales page completely nailed. I want to send that to hundreds of people to be like, is this a Grand Slam offer right now? Just purely based on the title and the one paragraph sales page. Once I know that that is a Grand Slam offer and the thing that the core concept of the book seems to resonate and people are like, yeah, I would definitely buy that. Then I would explode that into chapter headings. And then I would A-B test the shit out of those chapter headings to test with the audience to make sure it's like, here are 50 different chapter titles. What are the top five that you'd be most interested in reading about? And getting the data from the audience to be like, hmm, if I want to write a fitness book and maybe there's a chapter on like the most productive ways to stretch, maybe that suddenly gets 80% of the votes. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, interesting. That's the thing that people want to hear. And then I would approach that as the title of a YouTube video. Because I'm very good at making YouTube videos, but I've, I've never written a book. So this mm -hmm. was a lot of like uh, trying to learn the thing from scratch and working with the editors and so much back and forth. But I know how to make a YouTube video. So if I approached it as like, this book is 10 different YouTube videos, which all then, you know, all the research I'm then mm. doing for those videos is for a YouTube video where I test the ideas, I turn it into a Twitter thread, I test the ideas a bit more. I take the stuff that's good, that's resonating, I put it into the book. I would do so much more of like a startup-y, lean startup-y kind of a way of writing a book. This one was very different. This one was a lot of just like in the weeds, in the research papers, in my own head. And I would do things differently next time. I'm happy with the way it turned out, but it was a lot more of a painful process than I think I hope the second one will be. What was your productivity system to put together the book or approach? It changed a lot. So mm. it took three years from start to finish to get this book out. <laughs> How long does a YouTube video take? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> yeah, so it took three years. So in that time, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about productivity. At the start, I thought that oh, I mean, how hard can it be? It's like, I type pretty fast. I, write, I can write 2,000 words a day. A book is 60,000 words. That's a one-month job, easy. A book is just a collection of blog posts anyway, right? Like, you know, books can just be summarized in a blog post. Like, all, all, the only thing that a book is is just a few points padded out with a load of fluff. Those were the stories I told myself. So I wrote 2,000 words in day one, day two, day three, day four. And 8,000 words in, I'd run out of material. I was like, I've literally written everything I can possibly think of. And I've got like 8,000 words out of a 65,000 word book. Uh-oh, this is bad. And that was when I started, I, I dove into the research myself and I started like reading papers and stuff and coming across like way more stuff. I think initially I tried to delegate that out. I was like, oh, I don't need to be doing the research myself. Let me hire a research assistant. I hired a research assistant and he was really helpful, but it was not the same as me doing the research myself because like I've got the science background. I literally did a degree in psychology where I was literally reading research papers and writing essays about them. That was where I ranked first in my university for that particular year, that particular degree, because I just love this shit. And I was trying too hard to delegate that process away. But now I realize that actually me being in the weeds with it was really fun, really exhilarating, and led to so many more insights than outsourcing it to an assistant. And so your productivity was, it, how did it evolve? So you wrote everything in 8,000 words, and then how did that shift over the next few years? Yeah, then it was a lot of research, a lot of outlining. I think the, the, there was another thing that might be useful for people, which is there were periods of time where I was writing the book in parallel with other things. I was like, okay, I'm going to do two hours of writing in the morning, and then I'm going to do my this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do this. And I made very little progress in those weeks. But there were weeks where I was like, the only thing I'm doing this week is writing the next five chapters. That's literally the only thing. Or the only thing I'm doing for the whole day is to work on, work on this chapter and I'm going to get it done by the end of the day. Those were the days where I made tons and tons of progress. Now people say that like, oh, but a, a writer only gets four productive hours in a day. So I was like, okay, if I spend the first four hours writing, then that's good. But what I didn't realize is that 
you got to take procrastination into account. <laughs> got to take the screwing around into account, the sort of getting set up, the getting a coffee, going to the toilet, and uh, getting set up, getting into the swing of things. And on days where I had anything on the calendar other than writing, I didn't seem to make much progress. But on days where the only thing I had to do was work on the book, I made loads of progress because I got into that headspace. And I think this works differently for different people. There are some people who do a really good job of making small amounts of progress consistently with a large number of things. But I think for me, what I've realized is going all in and fully focusing on one thing at a time is way more effective for me personally than trying to do multiple things in parallel. As I was reading your book, what I noticed is there's just so many different things you encourage people to think about and test out, experiment to find the way that they're productive. I was trying to think about what is productivity? Because on one hand, I wrote down productivity. For me, it's speeding up your, your track speed. And then I was like, is that productive? And you know, I was just trying to think about what is productivity? Yeah, for me, productivity is doing the things that matter to you in a way that's intentional, effective, enjoyable, and sustainable. There's like quite a lot that goes into it. So doing the things that matter to you in a way that's intentional, like you're intentionally doing them, you're effectively doing them, as in you're not like screwing around, you're having fun along the way, and it's sustainable. And I think if we can get to those things, that is when we're truly productive. Because yeah, you could be productive with like, you know, I was big in keyboard shortcuts and typing speed and all that crap. But if you're working on the things that don't really matter, then all of that productivity is wasted. So there's some element of like intentionality and meaningfulness that's important here. Similarly, if you're sprinting and doing the thing and burning out, that's also not productive. So it's, it's, it's got to be sustainable. The whole thesis of the book and partly of your book is that the process should be enjoyable. Because if the process is enjoyable, you're just going to be more productive, but it's also going to be more fun, more sustainable, more energizing. All the good things will happen if you can find a way to enjoy the process itself. So to me, productivity is like all of those things, which some people would say is cheating because I'm, being, I'm defining productivity very holistically. But that's how I think about it. So it's my book. I can do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Who is someone in your audience or your team that you've seen that you've changed and helped them through productivity? What's a story that comes to mind? One of the guys on our team, his name's Tintin. He's our YouTube producer. And he also loves all these like productivity books, personal development books, and he's read, he's read a lot of them. And so he was really helpful in giving feedback on the early drafts. And he just sort of read a draft in like, like a year ago or something. And like six months later, he, he just said to me, you know, that first chapter, I've been actually applying that in, those insights for the last six months and it's completely changed the way that I approach my, he, he's doing a side business, approach my side business. I was like, oh, how's that? Because the first chapter is about play. It's about approaching work in the spirit of play. He was like, yeah, you know, just the post-it note. Well, what would this look, uh, look like if it were fun? The daily adventure, it's like that's a framing where every, at the start of every day you ask yourself, what is today's adventure going to be? And that's just like a more fun way of asking what's my biggest, most important task for the day. And Tintin asks himself this question every day and he's like, it's just completely moved the needle for my productivity and also for my happiness to frame work in this way. And I was like, oh, that's cool. It's nice that like he read it and six months later, the insight was still holding strong. I don't think people realize like what it takes to make a book. Mm. <laughs> I feel I bond with, with other authors so much of like the, the pain of the process and like how long and arduous it is. I hit up Tim Ferriss. I've known him for, I don't know, 20 years. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do a book. I'm thinking about it for a long time. He's like, it's hard. There's kind of one shot. Mm. You know, you do the YouTube video, like we do YouTube or tweets or emails. Okay, the video didn't work. I'm gonna do another video. I'm gonna do another video. Like there's a proposal to a book, to copy editing, to being published. Yeah, it's such a process. I'm sure you, you've experienced a lot of highs and lows as you were saying. I've been thinking about this. It's like, what's the hardest thing I can do and then do that? doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, but like this sounds like this book for you was a real challenge. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot through the process. And even if it doesn't, it's not a commercial success. I'm proud of what we collectively have created, as in me and our editors, <laughs> who have been amazing throughout the whole process and our research assistants. And even if it's not a commercial success, I've learned so much along the way about how to write a book and how to put research together and how to 
kind of the marketing side of things and all of that stuff. What is up, y'all? Quick sponsor plug. And I am so excited about the sponsor. And y'all know I have almost zero sponsors because most of the companies that sponsor suck and I can't really endorse them fully. Today's company, I fully do. It is gusto.com. You can check them out at gusto.com slash Noah. Let them know you came from us. This is so cool that they were excited to get into your earlobes. Now, at appsumo.com, we use, I think, Insperity or some other crappy thing. And I pray to all the Jesus, Jewish, Buddha, Muslim, all the gods that one day we can be on gusto.com. And you can use gusto.com slash Noah. Now, for our smaller team, this is definitely something we're considering for the YouTube team. If you're a one-person or two-person team, if you have HR headaches or you haven't even thought about it, gusto.com slash Noah is probably the thing to go do today. Get it over with. And then you can actually be like, holy shit, that was awesome. Because this is such a nightmare. Trying to get 1099. So if you have contractors, if you get a full-time employee, and good for you, by the way, grant your own company. I'm proud of you. You've been listening to the show and taking action. Doing payroll. It's unbelievable how it's like, dude, how, how does this help me grow my business? I don't want to be dealing with this. I want to be helping customers and kicking ass and drinking lattes or, or orange mocha frappuccinos. So by getting all this stuff set up with gusto.com, uh, you don't have to worry about any of that crap. It is such a headache. We literally at AppSumo have two full-time people because we're not using gusto.com. Why the hell are we not using this shit right away? I'm going to have to talk to the team. But if you're just getting started, you want to maybe do 401k, health insurance, a lot of other stuff. If you're hiring people internationally, it's a pain in the tuchus. From gusto.com sponsoring, we're able to buy copies of Million Dollar Weekend, which is coming up. Stay tuned to January. We'll be giving out copies of that from their sponsorship of the show, which is super cool. Go use gusto.com slash Noah. Shout out to them for hooking us up. When we were talking earlier today, I thought what was really powerful and really interesting is that you started your main YouTube channel at what age? 24. 24? Yeah. You were commenting how, I think, at 16, you did web design, and then you had an affiliate site, then you did all these things, and you started all this stuff that eventually led you to get to YouTube at 24, which has led you to, a, you know, to success with it. I think you would say it's success uh, by 29, and it's getting going. You know, we talked about starting, and same with this book. It's interesting, you, you, you said something kind of in passing. It's like, I do believe a lot of us have fixed mindsets. I read a book and that's the book, which for me, I'm, I'm happy with one book. But this is your first of many, yeah, right? And, and the fact that you got it going led you to think about, all right, well, how do I want to do it differently next time? And exactly. I think that's such a powerful lesson for everyone out there, which is if you want to get somewhere, great, just start now, whether it's writing, whether it's content, whether whatever it is. And then now in the future, you know how you want to improve that. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, I love is, you know, another book I read recently is The Practice by Seth Godin. The whole book is just lots of different ways of saying, focus on the process, don't worry about the outcome. And his whole thing is like, if you're making one thing, one blog post every week, it means that you're not that attached to each individual blog post. It's like, oh, it's a bit of a dud. That's okay. I'll do, I'll do another <laughs> one next week. And again, and again, and again, and again. And I think having that approach is actually very useful for writing a book as well, because this was a three-year-long project. But like Ryan Holiday writes books every one to one to two years, and some of them are less best-selling than others, like Courage is Calling, no one cares about courage, but Discipline is Destiny, man, people love discipline. Or Obstacle <laughs> is the Way, is, you know, still, still selling, Ego is the Enemy is still selling, but no one really reads Trust Me, I'm Lying, or like, very few people read The Perennial Seller, even though they're very good. I've read yeah. all of them, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he's, he's just... Prolific. He's just producing all the stuff. And in a way, I, I admire that approach to creation. The counterexample is like James Clear has got one book and has sold more copies than all of Ryan Holiday's 15 books combined. But also, I don't know, I think there's something really nice about the constant creative act of learning, researching, synthesizing, and putting something out there and saying, hey, you know, this is what I've done. Take it or leave it. I hope, I hope <laughs> you find it helpful. And just doing that a lot. And to me, that feels like yes. a good way of living life. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but I can imagine myself at 50 continuing to write books. 
and continuing to learn new things and being like, yeah, I want to write the next book. How do you figure out what to be productive on? Yeah, this comes down to that conversation around goal setting. It's like figuring out where you want to go. The way I approach it is like a few different ways. So essentially in each of the major areas of my life, so work, health, and relationships, I have a, a goal in mind or two or three of like, okay, this is where I want to go. I like the idea of annual planning. In the book, I call it the 12-month celebration. 12 months from now, you and I are sitting here, we're having a conversation. What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating in our health? What are we celebrating in our relationships? For me in health, what I'd love to be saying, oh no, man, the last 12 months, I've been hitting the gym three or four times a week and I've done that without fail. Even when I was traveling, even when I was ill, I was just hitting the gym at least, you know, fairly consistently and now check out the biceps. I would love to be celebrating that with you 12 months from now. That tells me that that's something I want, I'd like to be productive in. I'd like to find a way to make the process of going to the gym intentional, effective, enjoyable, and sustainable. When it comes to relationships, you know, this time next year, I'd love to be married. I'd love to be having a kid on the way. You're going to be a dad by this time next year. And we're both going to be celebrating how present we are as partners and as fathers and all this kind of stuff. That'll be really cool. Now I can be productive towards that. It's like, okay, that's my goal. What does that actually mean? Oh, it means I should probably, I, I want to do like two date nights a week with the girlfriend, fiance, wife, whatever the situation is. I want to make sure I finish work by 5 p.m. every day so that I can spend time with the family. I want to make sure I do my workouts in the morning when maybe the kid is asleep, like all, all of that kind of stuff. By knowing the thing we are trying to celebrate 12 months from now, we can then figure out the how to getting there. And to me, that involves figuring out, okay, what does it look like on the calendar? What does it look like on the to-do list? Like what are the, what are the mental models I need to be holding in my mind to act in a way that will make it very likely that I'll be celebrating with you 12 months from now. And then in the book, in the, in the final chapter, we talk about like the long-term, the medium-term time horizon. I really enjoy thinking about like, what would you want people to say at your funeral? A, a sort of like, who's the sort of person you'd like to be? What would you like written in your obituary? So I, I wrote my own obituary the other day, just, I was doing the exercise. And it was quite helpful for figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Because I'm like, if you figure out like, what would you like people to write about you when you're dead? About like your accomplishments, your achievements, the sort of person you were. Gives you a pretty good idea of like, oh, okay, cool. Is that the path I'm on? Or do I need to change course a little bit? So there's all sorts of ways to figure out what you should be productive in. I think part of it is about thinking long-term and part of it is thinking about like, well, what do I actually want in these different areas of life? Because mm. once you figure out what you want, it's like, okay, you can then figure out the plan to get there. But I think a lot of people struggle with figuring out what they want. In terms of being productive, what, what are you saying no to? Yeah, these days I say no to anything that doesn't take me towards the things that I know that I want. Um, and it's going it's, it's to keep, keep coming back to that. So these days, what I say, often what I say no to is something that helps me make money, but that where the process of that doesn't feel good. So for example, if it's a sponsorship deal with a brand that I don't actually use, I'd say no to that because I don't need the money. I don't, I don't want the money anymore. If it's like, hey, can you travel to this random country when you're in the middle of a vacation with your girlfriend to give a random talk and we'll pay you 50K for it? I'm like, eh, actually, I'm at a point in my life where I can comfortably say no to that. So things like that, where I, I want to make sure that the things I'm doing are not, I'm not just doing for the money. Doing something just for the money is a terrible reason to do something. Once you're at a point where you no longer need to be optimizing for making money, once you've got your family's basic needs met. What stood out to you about the obituary that you wrote for yourself? I wrote something to the effect of Ali Abdal was one of the world, was one of the greatest teachers in the world. Throughout his decades of creating, writing, and videos and stuff, he like harmoniously integrated loads of disciplines to help people live their best life in terms of body, mind, heart, and soul. As I was writing that, like this idea of body, mind, heart, and soul came to me. I was like, huh, that's interesting. I must have heard it from somewhere because it didn't just come to me spontaneously, but like, it's like body, mind, heart, and soul. That actually feels pretty good. Like productivity is sort of mind. I want to do a book about fitness at some point once I go on my own fitness journey. That's about the body. Heart, I mean, that's relationships. I want to do a relationships book at some point. And soul is like spirituality. I want to write a spirituality book. And I was like, huh, 
that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> if that is my work, body of work in the next like a few decades, body, mind, heart, and soul. And then my YouTube content or whatever platforms are around then, podcasts, you know, I'm fairly platform agnostic. <laughs> the stuff that I teach is about body, mind, heart, and soul. That's freaking sick. And I was like, oh, I now have this vision for like the sort of body of work that I want to do. And maybe it'll change. But at least for now, I, I have this idea of like, that's, that's kind of where I'm getting to. And then alongside, it was like, you know, alongside all this stuff, while he was like being a legend, traveling around the world, teaching cool stuff, he was always humble, always down to earth, prioritized his family, took care of his health, like his kids and his grandkids were, were with him when he died peacefully in their nice family home. And it's like, you know, keeping in mind that like, that's the thing I want to do for work, doing all this teaching stuff around body, mind, heart, and soul. But actually, I want to prioritize my family first. And I want to be there for my kids, and for the wife, and for grandkids, and all that stuff. And I don't want worldly success to come at the expense of personal relationships. So that's the obituary. And so that's a pretty reasonable painting of the destination. I'm like, great, let's start moving in that direction. I was looking at the back of your book, uh, Feel Good Productivity, and it said Dr. Ali Abdal. I was like, oh shit, he actually is a doctor. Oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot. I, know. I mean, I know, I've known you a while. Yeah. How come you didn't put it on the front of the book? I felt a bit uncomfortable putting it on the front of the book because I'm no longer practicing. It's a key part of the backstory, but it's not part of the forward story. It's like, that was a previous life. So we put it in the back of the book because it's kind of cool. It's like, oh, he's a doctor as well. But I didn't want to put it at the front for that reason. But you, you do include stories about, you know, your opening of the story is, is you as a new medical doctor and making a mistake. Yeah. And then there's stories throughout it about your medical experience. I was just kind of like, I forgot until you, I saw it in the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, a, it was a, a conscious decision. This is why my YouTube channel has never been called Dr. Ali. When you lead with that, it puts a certain expectation and a certain attachment to that identity, which I don't really want anymore. I was interviewed on Diary of a CEO like three years ago, back when it was still a small podcast, two years ago. And none of that was about me being a doctor. Like he didn't even mention I was a doctor. And the title of the podcast was The Productivity Expert. And I was like, huh, <laughs> interesting. I've like never, no, I kind of like that. I've never, I've never been called a productivity expert. That's cool. I guess people got a lot of value from that. And we didn't discuss medicine at all. Because I think one of the stories I told myself was, if I'm not a doctor, then no one's going to listen to my stuff. And actually, I'm not a doctor anymore. I've left that behind and people still seem to vibe with my stuff. So it's like, great, that's quite liberating. How do you think more people can break free from certificates? Ooh, yeah. My brother's a doctor as well. And he always sees these YouTubers and authors who are not certified. Yep. <laughs> they have no certificate to be a business expert. Yeah, sure. I mean, you even see people on YouTube, like they're teaching business. They don't even have businesses. <laughs> and so I, I do think that's a shift in society where a doctor I'm like 200, a YouTuber who was teaching about doctoring or other things can make millions. And it's an interesting shift just in society. Yeah, I think the certificate things is, is, is interesting. Obviously, there are some areas of life in which certification is important. Like you probably don't want your neurosurgeon to be operating <laughs> on you without the appropriate like degree and license and certificate. But if there's, I don't know, in a lot of other areas, like if I wanted to hire a guitar teacher, do they need any qualification other than they are good at teaching guitar? Probably not. Maybe there's guitar teacher qualifications, but I don't really care. Like, can they play and can they teach well? It's like, that's what I'm judging them on. There's a, the guy who taught me to play guitar is called Justin Guitar. He's on, he's on YouTube. I followed his beginner's course. I have no idea what his qualifications are, but he's a good teacher and I liked his vibe. It's like, who cares what his, his qualifications are? And I think people who have built their career and their life on credentials will always find that difficult to stomach. My mom really struggles with this. I was telling her at one point about Tiago Forte's course, Building a Second Brain. And her first question was, what are his qualifications? And I was like, I have not the foggiest. She was like, well, uh, which university do you go to? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's on his website, but like, who cares? The point is he's teaching me how to do digital note-taking, which is a thing he's been obsessed with for 10 years and yet I'm learning from him. <laughs> who cares what degree he got? <laughs> Whether he did a degree in economics or like political science or like, who cares? So I think increasingly in the world, people will vote with their eyeballs. 
There are a bunch of people who do like maths tutorials on YouTube. Who cares if they're a maths professor? Being a professor doesn't mean you're good at teaching. It means you're good at research. The medical school professors we had at Cambridge, Cambridge is a fucking huge name medical school. Almost none of the professors were actually good at teaching. There was a tiny number who were good at teaching because the way you become a professor is not by being a good teacher. It's by being a good researcher. And these guys are like, oh, God damn it, I've got to teach my lecture. I just want to be in my lab doing my research. Whereas the people who were the best teachers was the student in the year above me or the two years above me who's just doing it for fun. They don't have a qualification. They're not a doctor yet. But they're like, they know the subject really well. They understand me. They have empathy for where I am because they did it last year. They've got really good notes. They have good vibes. They have energy. They bring sweets to the classroom. Like, that's the person I want to learn from. (laughs) And there's a place of learning from experts and credentials and stuff. But I think increasingly the world is moving towards if you can actually do the thing that you're claiming to do and people like it and people are getting value from it, then who cares what certification you have? Again, provided it's not like neurosurgery or stuff like that. What have you learned about effective teaching through teaching yourself so much and creating a book about teaching people how to be productive and creating all this mm. YouTube and courses. What have you yeah. learned about what makes an effective teacher or what are some stories or things you've seen that, that yeah. help you nice. teach? One thing that I keep on coming back to is that teaching is a performance art. <laughs> and the best That's teachers good. are really good entertainers and they can tell a really good story and they can keep you engaged through an otherwise, uh, something that might otherwise be boring. We had a great teacher in first year who was doing physiology. He was a Canadian lecturer, actually. He was like the best guy we had teaching us that whole year. And he just made it so engaging. He didn't have PowerPoint slides even. He was like, he would like draw diagrams and a little overhead projector, like old school, even though he could have used PowerPoint or like interactive whiteboard or anything. And he was just really good at explaining things. And he just like draw the diagram and explain in a charismatic way with some storytelling and some an- analogies. And like, imagine the heart as like a little pump with that's connected to like four pipes. And here's the little pump and here are the four pipes. Okay, cool. Now imagine when you squeeze the pump, here's what's happened. What's going to happen when you squeeze the pump? Well, a line's going to go there, a line's going to go there. It was so engaging and so nice. Compared to some of the other lecturers that were like dense PowerPoint slides, loads of references, handouts that are just boring. It's like, I think a huge part of being an effective teacher is being engaging and being fun. And it's a performance art. I used to do close-up magic back in the day when I was at university. And one of my dreams is to have my own stage show kind of like Darren Brown meets Jay Shetty meets like Tony Robbins-ish. And I think there's something around people who are into entertaining often tend to be good teachers as well, at least from what I've seen on YouTube and in real life. So I think that's a really underrated part of teaching. What did your parents do for a living? Both my parents are doctors. So my mum is a single parent. My parents divorced when I was like one year old. So I never really knew my dad, uh, but he's a doctor in Pakistan. And my mum is a psychiatrist, specializes in mental health disorders and stuff like that. Do you ever interact with your dad? Not really. We hang out with him every few years when we go back to Pakistan, grab a bite to eat or something like that. How's that? Kind of awkward. I don't really know him that well. It sort of feels like a distant uncle that you know that you're related to, but like don't really feel that close to. But, you know, it's a vibe. (laughs) (laughs) It's a vibe. (laughs) Yeah, I think like not growing up with a dad, it's very hard to imagine what it's like having a dad. Mm. You know, my mom sometimes asks me, she's like, you know, do you ever regret that you didn't have a father growing up? It's like, if someone, I don't know, is, is not able to see color from birth, as they're seeing in black and white, they, they can't even comprehend what it's like to see color. So it's like, no, I don't spend any time thinking, like wishing I had a dad or wishing, yeah, it's just not even something that remotely crosses my mind. I do wonder, I've, I've seen patterns. One, I have, similarly, my parents divorced early. Luckily, my stepdad was great and my father, I think a lot of my business was to try to get him to acknowledge me. Oh, okay. And I think that's true for like, you know, Jeff Bezos was uh, adopted. You no, know, Jeff Bezos' stepdad, Steve Jobs adopted. There's a lot of, you know, kind of similar patterns. Mm. I was just curious if that impacted you or how you think that that maybe played a role or not. Yeah, I don't know. I think one thing that I did miss out on a little bit is 
like not having a father figure growing up means that I had zero examples of what like positive masculinity looked like in that I had no idea what it, what, what does it look like if someone is upset for a man to be the one comforting them? Because the only examples I saw of someone comforting someone else was my mom or the female teachers who I had in primary school. I didn't have any male teachers in primary school. And so it's like, it's a bit weird. What does that actually look like? And some people might be listening to this saying that like, oh, it's the same as when a female comforts someone. It's like, no, it's not. Like the way a man shows like reassurance and comfort is not the same as a maternal nurturing figure, like a mom showing the same thing. It would just be kind of weird, especially if it was a stranger. It's like guys do have to interact in a different way than women do. Naturally, I've seen zero examples of that. When my girlfriend was upset, for example, and she was describing how her dad would come for her when she was young, I was like, whoa, that's just like mind blowing. What did she say? Oh, she was just like, yeah, he would just, you know, come up to me. He would crash down to my level. He would ask if I was okay. He would put a hand on my shoulder. He would tell me everything's going to be all right. He would give me a little sandwich from his bag. I'm like, oh, that's cute. Whereas, you know, when like my mom would do it, it would be much more of a, much more of a show of like, oh, honey, come here. It's like, like just a different way of communicating. And I always find myself fascinated to see like, how do dads interact with kids in a way that's different to how moms interact with kids? So I've started keeping a lookout for those things now. Did your mom date? No, she never remarried here. Never? Yeah, so my mom's single parent. She moved us to Africa. It was me, my brother, and my grandma, and my mom. So my mom was working full-time as a doctor at the time in Africa, and my grandma was sort of raising me and my brother. Then my mom would get home from work, and like we'd all have dinner as a family. And my grandma was a teacher, so she sort of like homeschooled us a little bit while we were in school as well. We're in Africa? Lesotho is like a country surrounded by South Africa. Oh, really? Like right at the bottom of South Africa. Within South Africa, there is a country called Lesotho and another country called Swaziland. I've heard that one, I think. Yeah. So Lesotho is like a, a random country that most people haven't heard of. And how long did you live there for? Five years. What ages? Age like one to six. Do you remember anything from that time? Yeah, quite a lot. Like, yeah, I had a great time. It was just like, it feels weird to talk about now, but it was just normal growing up because it's like, when that's all you know, that's, you think that's totally normal. So I went to the local school, good vibes, mostly black kids. <laughs> I was surprised. I remember coming to the UK for the first time, going to school. I was like, whoa, everyone's my skin color because everyone was white. And, you know, I look more, you know, in a school of black people, I stand out. But in this way, when I saw a school of white people, it was such a contrast. I was like, whoa, that's mental. I've never seen all these white people before. But like, yeah, it was, it was good vibes. <laughs> Do you know why your parents broke up? My mum never, has never quite given me the juicy details of it. She says that they had the differences and she sort of leaves it at that. And then was this in Pakistan they, yeah. they met? Yeah. And then how did she end up going to Africa? It was kind of random. At, at a wedding she was attending, a guy she was sitting next to happened to be the guy who was sent by the queen to go to Lesotho to set up a hospital there for the British Empire. And he just happened to meet my mom at a wedding. And my mom was like, oh, you work in Africa. Interesting. I've always wanted to work in Africa just because it seemed cool. And he was like, well, do you want a job? We're, we're looking for doctors. And she was like, huh, actually, yeah, let's go. So she took me and <laughs> my brother and her mom and we just all moved to Africa from Pakistan. It's kind of rogue. <laughs> that is rogue. How did your mom raise you? What were house rules? There was a big emphasis on education. So like, you know, from Africa, we moved to the UK because of education. My mom and grandma always valued our, our, our education as like being the ultimate thing. And so there was a real emphasis on, you know, doing well in school. I was lucky because I was naturally smart. And so I just did well in school by default. But also I think the vibe of, and you know, I got, I got this messaging from my grandma more than my mom of like, it's like a great thing to get into a good university. And, you know, the words Oxford and Cambridge kind of being thrown around when we were like eight years old. I was like, yeah, I want to go to, I want to, go to Oxford or Cambridge. That kind of thing. So that developed within me. It wasn't like they were like, you have to do well in school with like a stick. It was more like, 
I wanted to do well in school, but I'm pretty sure that's because the messaging I got was like, doing well in school is a good thing to do. And so I had that fire inside me. I think like growing up, because my mom was a single parent working as a doctor in the UK, her salary was like 28K, 30K, something like that. We had enough money for the, you know, for the basics of life, but not enough money to like go on fancy holidays or like to get Playstations for our birthday or anything like that. And I think that was a very good thing because it meant that I had this like base security of like where things are totally fine. We live in a nice house and go to a nice school and we had enough money to send us on like the school ski trip and stuff. But for the luxuries like a PlayStation or a laptop or things like that, I had to save up for those things. And I had to save up by, you know, birthday money that I would get as gifts and Eid presents and stuff like that. But also I got myself a part-time job teaching maths and private tutoring and trying to make websites on the internet. And I think had we had more disposable income growing up, I may have had less of an entrepreneurial drive than I did. And so me and my brother would be thinking like, oh man, if we can just make 200 pounds this year, we'll be able to get an extra monitor for our desk setup and stuff like that when we were, when we were kids. Whereas I had friends who would get like PlayStation 3s and stuff for their birthdays and they had no entrepreneurial drive. I wonder if there was something around yeah. growing up with enough money so as to not worry about poverty, but not so much that like you had everything handed to you that developed that desire to make money on the internet, which I am so grateful for. Did your mom trip out when you quit doctor or did she, was she happy about it? Oh, she tripped out quite a lot. (laughs) She's over it now. (laughs) But at the time she was like, because, you know, for her, I think for immigrant parents, the whole thing is like safety and security. And medicine is a very safe and secure profession. And so to trade something that's safe and secure for like this YouTube thing, like what the the hell, like where is this going to go? Like what if it doesn't last? All of those things are fears that I had and fears that were magnified a hundredfold in my mom because she was like, oh my goodness. But she's gotten over it now. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty chill these days. Does she watch all the videos? No, she's kind of stopped now, I think. I don't know. Really? Yeah. She listens to the podcast that I do with my brother. To be honest, we, we produce too much content. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a full-time job to keep up with it. <laughs> yeah. um, what was the most trouble you got in as a kid? Oh, one time I was trying to learn, I think it was, I was like 13. I was trying to teach myself how to program uh, viruses. Uh, like, um, and I found this like article about how to write a Trojan horse as like a backdoor into a computer. And I, I had the code on like a USB memory stick. And I only had one USB memory stick, which was also the thing I used for my schoolwork. And so I plugged it in just randomly in one of the school computers to do my school transferring PowerPoint files or whatever. And the school's antivirus system picked it up because it was a really unsophisticated, basic ass Trojan that I'd written just as a sort of tutorial project. And then the antivirus flagged up. And then I got a call from the deputy headmaster being like, come to my office. He took me to the headmaster, got super, got like major bollocking by, by the headmaster of the school, who was like this big imposing guy. They said they were going to suspend me from school for a week. And I was like the good kid. I was like, never been in trouble. I was always like top of the class. It's like, this was very uncharacteristic for me. But I wrote like a nice apology letter. And so instead, all I had to do was come into school for a few days during the holidays. And they were like, well, this guy likes computers. So let's just get him to like open up every computer in the school and just get rid of the packets of chips and the chewing gum and the dust with a little hoover, <laughs> hoover up the inside of the school computers. <laughs> so thankfully, I managed to get away without getting suspended from school. I was such a badass. <laughs> I, was, I was really cool, as you can tell. You were smoking cigarettes. Yeah, exactly, I was so cool. Was this a private school or public? It was a public grammar school, so it's like a selective public school. How did you know you were smart when you were younger? You said you knew you were smart. I could get good grades without having to work too hard for it. And I saw that like the kids around me were really struggling, and I seemed to not. I don't think I told myself that, oh, it's because I'm smart. I think that's a, a realization I made after the fact. What do you believe is the hardest thing you've worked on? Probably this book. went <laughs> to medical school. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, med- medical school is, isn't that hard. Like, once you get in, like, it's quite hard to get in. But if you have really good grades, it's not that hard to get in. 
it's hard to get in if you don't have good grades. Now you're, then you're fighting an uphill battle. But I had like amazing grades and I prepared for the interviews and stuff. Like I was going to get in. <laughs> it would have been weird if I didn't get in, given those unfair advantages that I had. Once you're in medical school, it's not that hard because there's a lot of support. You've got all friends around you. Everyone's trying to do well. It's really hard to fail. Like you have to kind of try to flunk out, at least in the UK. And so there have been very few things that I've like failed at as such. And very few things that I've felt like I had to really level up and really step up to get good at. And honestly, this book, while trying to juggle the business and everything else that was going on in life, just honestly making the time to just write every day or find those periods of solitude to just focus on writing and trying to craft a thesis that felt a bit novel and trying to do the research at the same time. It was like writing a really long thesis. Well, I mean, like a PhD program is three years and you end up with like a 60,000 word dissertation. This is a 65,000 word dissertation <laughs> from three year like PhD program of like looking at research papers and stuff while doing that alongside running the business. Now, honestly, I would say writing this book has been the hardest thing I've done. You said you had unfair advantages to get into medical school? Yeah, in that I had good grades and a supportive family and stuff, which a lot of people don't, which is why it's hard to get in for a lot of people. Do you think your success is replicable? Like other people can copy and get to where you are? Uh, depends. I don't think someone who is in medical school now could start a YouTube channel in exactly the same way that I did and do it because that was six years ago. Times have changed. But if by success we mean successful YouTube channel and business around it, then yeah, easily. Well, well, sorry, not, not easily. It's simple, but not easy. It's simple in that the formula is pretty obvious. It's like find a way to create useful educational videos once or twice a week and just do it for seven years. It's not, it's not that hard. <laughs> and just aim to be a little bit better each time, even though that's unsustainable. So don't even do that forever because you can't be a little better every time. Just focus on being as useful as possible and sell a course off the back of what people asking, are asking you for every now and then. Like that's literally the formula and anyone could do it. Like someone listening to this right now, if they really wanted to, could teach themselves a thing and then just make videos about the thing now that they've taught themselves the thing, whatever the thing is, and then do it for a very long time. It's like almost impossible to not succeed with something if you do it for long enough. And as you say in Million Dollar Weekend, people just quit too early. There are so few people who make it past 100 videos. There are so few podcasts that make it past episode number three, even fewer that make it past episode number 20. Like for a podcast to get more than 20 episodes, oh man, the person making the podcast has been, been a real trooper like sticking it out. I'm on 750 videos. Like it's not that hard. It's just, <laughs> just got to make the videos every week <laughs> and just do it forever. What kept you sticking with it for seven years? I think in the early days, it was faith and patience. Faith that something would work out and patience that I'm willing to wait until it does and enjoying the process and trying focusing on the process rather than the outcome. Like, I'm just going to focus on making one video a week and I know something good will come of this. I don't know what it is, but I have faith that something good will come of this. And then once the momentum started, like momentum then sustains the thing. It's like the effort at the start is sort of like kindling the fire, getting the fire started. Yes. But once the fire is going, all you need to do is not screw it up. As the channel started to gain momentum, now it's like there's new views and new comments and new likes and all that stuff is motivating. There's money coming in. It's like, fuck, I'm making $5 a day now. Man, I could get myself a takeaway every day and it, YouTube would, I'm now making $50 a day, $50 a day. I can literally eat forever and YouTube would fund it. Now I'm making like, like freaking $1,000 a day and it's completely absurd. And it's like all of these things like start to snowball over time. Then actually it was a, a conversation with you three years ago where you were like, oh man, you know, you've, you've easily got a $10 million business on your hands. And I was like, oh, interesting. Let me see what products I could sell which kind of sparked this course creation thing, which then took us from 100K to a million in that year. And I'm like, that's cool. There's momentum behind that. Once something starts to be successful, all you have to do is not screw it up and just sort of ride the wave. But to create the wave in the first place requires the faith and the patience that things will work out. Who is the coolest channel 
that have gone through your YouTube Academy that you're most proud of? There's a friend of ours called Izzy, who uh, Izzy Seely, who started her YouTube channel as like her, she started during the YouTuber Academy, like the course. She was also a medical student at the time, now working as a doctor, and she made videos about like personal development and stuff. But she made a video about how to learn Mandarin because she taught herself Mandarin in like six months, and that video went viral. And that was only video like fifteen. It took me 85 videos to go viral. She went viral in video number 15. And her channel has just crossed 500,000 subscribers. And she's only made like 50 videos. For context, I got 1,000 subscribers when I made 52 videos. And she's got 500,000 subscribers with 50-ish videos. So she's just like taken all the lessons that we teach in the course and just sort of supercharged them. Another like famous alumnus is Chris Williamson. He was on, really? he was on 100,000 subscribers. His channel was called Modern Wisdom. He didn't know anything about YouTube. He took the course. He leveled up his titles and thumbnails, rebranded to Chris Williamson. He's on 1.5 million now and just keeps on climbing. Obviously, he's put in loads of work. I cannot take any credit for his success, but we have a nice video, video testimonial from him where he's like, man, I was such a noob. And then I took the course and then I knew how to do YouTube. So I just applied it to my podcast. And so he's, he's blown up as well. Walk me through every business you've done, not in detail, but I think this is just such an interesting thing. We talked about experiment and swings. And I didn't realize how many swings you took before you even got to starting the YouTube stuff. Just oh. maybe like the of, of these things from when you got going. Yeah, okay, so... Here are all the businesses that I've tried to start. Firstly, when I was 13, I decided to start a forum which was going to teach kids how to be spies because I loved like the Cherub and Alex Ryder books back in the day. And I was like, okay, this is a forum. We're going to teach teenagers how to pick locks and how to do martial arts and all that shit. That was a total flop, obviously. Then it was trying to build online games. So I contacted Blizzard, I contacted Nintendo, I contacted a few authors who I admired, and I kept on asking for permission to turn their intellectual property into games. All of them either ignored me, or they said no, or they said, sorry, we've already sold the movie rights, and that comes with the video game rights. Then I built a sort of web design studio, which was basically just me as a 14-year-old in my bedroom, but I was a web design studio. So I tried to make money by shilling myself to friends and family, and also on like freelance marketplaces back in the day. And so I, in total, made like $300 across like eight years from doing that. So not very much money at all. Business number four that I attempted to start was a niche affiliate marketing site. So StarCraft II, the video game had just come out. And I watched this online course on how to make money on the internet with affiliate marketing. And there was this guy selling a StarCraft II guide for like $50. And the affiliate deal for that was like 50%. So if you sold his guide, you would get $25. So I tried making a website where Protoss, which is one of the races in StarCraft II, has Protoss build orders was this SEO term I was trying to rank for. And I was like, if I can just make the build orders for all the Protoss of like, in this order, this is the order of buildings that you place with order of pylons and order of nexuses and order like the timings. People are searching for that shit. People will read my articles on wordpress.com. They'll buy the thing and I'll make $25. I made no money from that. And that was business number four or five. I've forgotten where we are. Then I decided to do a multi-level marketing thing where Blockbuster Video at the time was doing an affiliate system, where if you got someone to sign up for Blockbuster, even if it was just a free trial that they canceled, they'd pay you $12.50. And I was like, sick, I'm in. (laughs) So what I did was I made one of these websites where you could sign up to Blockbuster, and if you referred 25 other people, you would win a Xbox 360 or something, because we would make enough from that affiliate commission. I made $50 from that. The way I made it is because one of my friends had four sisters. So he signed up with all four of their credit cards. <laughs> and I got $12.50 times four. So I made 50 pounds. And I got that as a weird check. I was on a school trip and my mum rang me up on time. She was like, you've got this weird check in the mail. It's like an electronic check that says millions, zero, hundreds of thousands, zero, tens of thousands, zero. And it's like, I don't know if you've seen these like electronic programmatically generated checks. I was like, tens, five. And so the total is like zero, 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 $50. So I cashed that check. I was like, yes, I've made passive income on the internet. That was business number five. 
Business number six was I tried to build another game after I knew more about coding. That game did not work. Business number seven, I think, was the one that finally succeeded. And business number seven was when I made courses to help people get into med school. And I built a website for that. And I marketed nationally. I did some lead generation on forums and stuff. I was giving loads of helpful advice. And this was like, when I was 19, the first business I made when I was 19, when I started at 13, at 19, suddenly it succeeded. And year one, we made 10K. Year two, we made 100K. Year three, we made 150. And I sold the business many years later. And that business led to the formation of my YouTube channel, which I guess was business number eight. And that's made me multimillionaire. So it's like, well, quite a lot of shots of bat for those first six years. Yeah. Oh, along the way, business six and a half was like a you know soft, <laughs> software as a service, like for medical students. But it was within the branch of the med yeah. school thing where me and my brother programmed an online question bank with a subscription payment system for helping people do practice questions for these exams. So I programmed all the backend stuff. I was watching tutorials on like PHP and the Laravel framework yeah. in my lunch breaks as a medical student, watching this guy called Jeffrey Way, who's a programmer, just like screencast how he was programming in this language PHP. And my brother was into programming as well. So he built the front end using React, which is another web framework. And so we sort of combined forces and built this thing together. And that was making some money. Was like, there was quite a lot of shots of bats. a lot um, of swings. And now I've been doing YouTube for the last seven years. So that's been my main focus. <laughs> you know, now you said you're a multimillionaire. What is the best part of being rich? Oh, the best part of being rich is the freedom. The freedom to not do shit that I don't want to do and to do the stuff that I do want to do. The freedom to, for example, I'm flying to Australia in a bit. It's a long flight. I was like, screw it. I'll just go business class. Like the freedom to be able to do that is like, I would have never imagined millionaires that would pay so much to fly business class. But I'm like, you know what? Actually, I value comfort. That's my money dial. You know, to use Ramit Sethi's terminology, comfort and convenience. So let's go for it. The freedom to be able to quit my day job, which, you know, I quite enjoyed working as a doctor, but having the freedom to move away from that, to do the thing that I, that really lights me up, which is to read, write, learn and teach. Ah. That's incredible. You know, a friend, Sahil Bloom, invites me to go to Cabo in Mexico for like a week to hang out. And I'm like, let's go. I've got the time freedom. I've got the money freedom to be able to, be able to do that and hang out with entrepreneurs. The freedom to just come to LA just to hang out with people and to be on people's podcasts and just make, <laughs> make, make friends. Be like, you know, I think I might want to move to LA. Let's just visit for a week and just see what happens. It's like the freedom to fly back to London on a moment's notice just to be there for my mom's birthday. It's just so much, so much freedom is unlocked by having money, as you know. And it's not about the, purchases. I don't really buy anything particularly fancy. I buy camera bags. That's like my thing. I was like finding the perfect camera bag and I make sure I have decent cameras. But like there's only so much you can spend on cameras and camera bags before you physically cannot spend anymore. <laughs> so like I don't really buy anything. I just have the freedom to go places and do things that a lot of other people don't have the freedom to purely because they don't have enough money. How much have you spent on your camera gear? Because as I walked into your hotel room with where you have like decent amount of cameras, like wow, how much have you spent on tech? Yeah, probably, I don't know, a few tens of thousands maybe in my life. The camera gear that I have with me, I probably carry about 15K worth of camera gear with me. He doesn't carry it with him, by the way. <laughs> I don't carry it <laughs> he with has me. A, his security <laughs> guard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, there's only so much. Like, yeah, you could go for the 50K red cameras, but then they're really heavy and really bulky. Sony A7S3, Dude, like so sick. 3,000 pound camera, really, really, really good. And like the lenses I have on them are not even the expensive ones because these the cheap ones are lighter and I'm optimizing for weight and size. That's cool. And no one can tell the difference between a $1.8 $100 lens and a $1.2 G Master lens. Like literally no one can tell the difference. And so I might as well save the two grand, save the one extra one kg <laughs> and just have the have a cheap ass lens. <laughs> so I, I like finding those optimizations of like, what's the upper limit to how much is reasonable to spend on this thing? Yeah. And all, in terms of like the size and the weight to that, this thing will get me. How's your keyboard? 
I saw you launch a keyword. I saw it right here. Yeah. How's the keyword launch? How'd that go? That was interesting. I was like surprised. Yeah. It didn't go very well. It sold, I think, a few tens of units. Tens of thousands or tens? No, tens. Like actually tens. I think we have about either a few hundred or a couple of thousand in stock. I don't really know. Like the team deals with that. I like the idea of building a tech brand, of being able to build productivity tech, like the perfect backpack, the perfect keyboard, the perfect journal, stuff that I would actually use on a daily basis. And so we thought, fuck it, let's just do it. And we haven't really tried very hard to market it. Like we only just briefly mentioned it on Instagram because like we were promoting our YouTube course on Black Friday and that did $514,000 of sales in like three days, which was pretty cool. And so we were like, we don't want to promote this keyboard too hard. Also, we're promoting the book. So we were like, you know what? Let's just chill, launch it. Yeah. I don't really have any expectations. It's going to be on Amazon as well. The company we're working with is pretty confident that worst case scenario, the stock will sell slowly over the next five years. So hopefully we're not going to lose money on it. Yeah. But I just like the idea of building a cool tech brand. So all of this camera gear and stuff that I buy, I can actually just build our own version of it and sell that. It's a bit of a bet. Not sure how successful it's going to be, but we're going to give it a go and, and try it out. It's kind of the same message that you had earlier, which is you tried a lot of things. Some work, some don't, but you keep trying. Yeah, we've tried so many things within this YouTube business as well. Tried so many different niches of content, tried so many different ways of doing courses, tried so many iterations of our YouTuber Academy. I was like, eventually we landed on something that worked. And even when something works, you have to adapt it over time because what works today may not work two years from now. Amen. And so there's just so much experimentation going on throughout the whole thing to the point that when you asked, how did the launch go? I was kind of like, huh, how did the launch go? I guess objectively <laughs> it didn't go very well, but I just haven't, I haven't even vaguely thought about that because I'm like, oh, just one of the many projects we're working on. There are some things that you do where you push the door and it swings right open. Like the YouTuber Academy course, cohort one, man, I thought seven people would buy it. 350 people bought it. More money I've ever seen than I've ever seen in my life. That completely changed my life. Like the stars aligned to make that happen. That doesn't usually happen when you launch a business for the first time. It's not usually the case that you just mention it on Twitter and suddenly 300 people sign up to pay $1,000 for the thing. That's weird. And so I don't have the expectation that like things are going to be as effortlessly successful as the YouTuber Academy was. I'm just like, yeah, we'll give it a go. Try it out, see what happens. Double down on the things that are working. Think twice about the things that are not. If it's fun, we might just do it anyway, even if it doesn't make money. And just hope for the best. Can you teach everyone out there some cool British words, like three of the coolest British words you know. Mm, yeah, you called one. You said one downstairs to me, like we were calling it a chap or a lab. But you, you had a different word, like for something cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> the thing I said to you downstairs was wetter. W e t t e r. Wetter is British slang. I was ironically using the word because it's a sort of toxic masculinity kind of word. If, for example, you were talking to me about your feelings, and I was like a stereotypical British dude who didn't know anything about feelings, I'd be like, oh, mate, you're being such a wetter. Like, you're being a bit of a bit of a sissy, a bit of a simp, or whatever the, I don't know what the Americans would say. So wetter is a fun one. Another fun phrase from British English is faff. That, oh, mate, writing this book was such a faff. Mate, launching a keyboard is such a faff. It's like a bit of a ball ache. It's a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a hassle. It's a bit of like, oh, it's, it's kind of annoying. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, oh, man, it's such a faff. Oh, it's, it's such a faff booking an Airbnb these days, but you've got to pay the cleaning fees, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the third one is can't be asked. Can't be asked. It's like A-R-S-E-D. Arse, you know, like arse, like bottom. Can't okay. be asked means I can't be bothered. Means like I don't have the energy for it. I can't be asked. You shorten that to CBA if you're like texting someone. So I, I can't be asked to write another book because it's too much <laughs> of a faff. And I'm not a wetter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that would be a sentence that has all three, although it's slightly out of context. <laughs> what has been the book you've recommended the most? Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. Amazing book. Changed my life. 2016, I read it. It takes literally 20 minutes to read. It's the book that convinced me that it's okay to start a blog. I've been wanting to start a blog for years. Yeah, I had the fear of starting and that book took away my fear of starting. It helped me realize that actually there's something really nice about putting your work out there on the internet. 
and it's totally okay to do and it's a good thing to do. So thank you, Austin Cleon. I'll be forever Shut in your up. debt. Because wow. if I hadn't started that blog in 2016, I would not have started the YouTube channel in 2017. So it's such an easy book to gift. It's like tiny. So that's number one. Actually, recently, maybe uh, The Pathless Path by Paul Millard. Hmm. He's also based in Austin. That's a self-published book. So he's become a friend of mine and my brother's. So this is a book about like, you know, he had a corporate consulting gig and quit his job to like do his own thing and wasn't making that much money. But it's, it's sort of meditations and musings around like life and money and meaning and work and what does it really mean to have freedom and follow your passion? And he sort of has this idea of the pathless path or the pathless mm. path, as Americans would say, like rather than the default path, which is like get a job, work your way up. Yeah. The pathless path, which is like, you know what? Actually, I'll do a bit of consulting here, a bit of freelancing here and there. I'll make enough money to get by and then I'll just sort of wander and explore and spend loads of time in the park and go to the beach and spend time with the family. And I just love it. It's, it's a really good book. Last two things. In my experience, I've done it for years now. You really make me feel that nice guys can finish first. <laughs> I'm not being a wetter here, dude. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I, I truly believe like you're, and maybe this is just a compliment. I don't know what the question is. It was, I guess it was a question and a statement. I do think some people are like, oh, I'm, I'm selling, I'm taking from someone else, or I'm trying to get famous, so I'm like trying to take advantage and climb up other people. But I, I feel, I've always admired how you always seem to do it in a genuine and a caring way. Sorry, oh, I'm, being thanks, a I'm being a wetter here. Yeah, you're being a wetter. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what my question is there. I was just, I was thinking about it when I was, you know, putting together the show. And there's something about like just being happy and uh, assuming you're happy. I hate when people do that, like they label it the other person. You seem, you're enjoying it. And you seem like you're, you're yeah. wanting to help others and smile and, and along the way. I think this is the thing with having like just not very ambitious goals. Like if someone asked me, what are your goals for the book? You know, part of me would say, oh, I'd love it for the New York Times bestseller list and stuff. But like, really, what's my goal for the book? To write a book I'm proud of and hope that some people find it helpful. What's my goal for YouTube? Honestly, to just being able to keep on doing it. That's a fairly non-ambitious goal. I'm not like, we're going to go for 10 million subscribers next year, guys. I'm just like, I just want to find a way to keep the process fun and just do it for a long time. Because I found that when you keep the process fun, you just do it for a long time, good things will just happen. And so when that's the goal, it means that I'm not like, trying to sort of message loads of people to sort of feel, hey man, can I come on your podcast? I really want to promote my book. It's like, if they offer, great. I'll send an email. I'll, I'll make the ask once. But like, I don't need to feel like I'm begging for this thing. Similarly, I don't need to feel like I'm competing with anyone. I don't need to feel that, you know, we have a very liberal money back guarantee on our stuff. If you don't like our shit, we'll just give you your money back. We don't care. We don't need the money. Like, who gives a fuck? That's like what I try and tell my team. It's like, and then I'll get it. They're like, if anyone's even vaguely unhappy, we're just giving their money back. It's like when you have a high margin business where the goal is to just keep on doing the thing, you don't need to clamber over anyone to get there because it's so easy to just stay there by just being nice and being helpful and trying to help people out. Like three years ago, I wrote, I made a video about Jay Shetty's book, Think Like a Monk. And I hung out with Jay Shetty last time we were in LA. And he took me and, you know, my team out to dinner, uh, to lunch, super nice guy. And he was like, yeah, Ali, you know, I really appreciate the fact you made that video about my book. I was like, oh, I didn't realize he'd seen it. But he, he'd seen that three years ago. And it's like the good karma for that video. It's like coming back now where he's like, yeah, if you want to move to LA, let me know. I've got lawyers, I've got contacts. And what I'm just finding is like people in this industry are just so nice. Like everyone who's a creator is just so nice, in the, especially in the educational space. I don't really know many entertainment people. But it's like, you know, I was on Lewis Howe's podcast, you know, I mentioned him a couple of times in videos and stuff. And now we're mates. You know, I had Matthew Hussey on my podcast. He lives in LA. And now we're mates. It's just like good shit just keeps on happening because I think it's like, you know, the whole thing is just focus on the process, focus on enjoying it and be helpful to people along the way. And that's, I think, one of the secrets to success, if you can call it that. Ali Abdal. Nice. That is a wrap. Hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. If you did, go check out Ali's new book, Feel Good Productivity. 
Give Ali some love on Twitter and Instagram. That's Ali Abdal, A-L-I-A-B-D-A-A-L. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's get busy making the world a better place together. <laughs> hey, before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you think about this episode. Also, thank you, gusto.com slash Noah. If you are looking for payroll help, again, go give them some love. I really appreciate them sponsoring the show. I definitely recommend them as a product, especially if you need payroll, HR, 1099. Stuff just sucks in general, but thank God there's gusto.com slash Noah to get you hooked up. Go give them some love if that's something you're interested in or you want to change. I know that for absolute are common, like, yes, please use Gusto. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team who make this happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing the episodes. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Tommy, Sylvie, Dylan, Jay for the dark team for all the magic y'all do. Have a tremendous day. What's your favorite hot sauce?